Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, the only radio show that is 100% gluten-free. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm coming to you today from my home office in Portland, where we're enjoying another classic Oregon spring day, gray skies, steady drizzle, and crisp, cool air. I love it. On today's show, we're going to turn our attention to juniors and the college list building process. I'll welcome experts from our admissions and financial aid teams to talk about building a list with balance, both in terms of admissibility and expected cost. This is one area where all of my juniors are currently focusing their energy and attention. And we're at that time of year where I think 11th grade families really ought to start thinking seriously about the possibilities. We'll help you get there. But before we close the file on our seniors and move on to our juniors, I'd like to take some time to go back and, and talk about the wait list. Uh, the wait list is a lonely place uh, in a place of uncertainty uh, and not unlike a uh, New York City subway platform in the dead of night. Will that train ever come? It's hard to say. And joining me from New York is expert on all things and chief of the Give Ian a Hard Time fan club, Emily Toffelmeyer. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hey, Ian. Wow. Really painting a picture today with <laughs> That's right. intros That's right. these words. Make well, it dark. Know. On the podcast. Well, it shouldn't it shouldn't feel dark um, in terms of the, the wait list, but I, it is a conversation that we had a couple weeks ago on the show. Uh, it's a question I think that we keep getting in emails and conversations. And so we want to make sure that we cycle back to it. And you and I talked a little bit about uh, just talking about enrollment management in general, some of the different ways that colleges try and hit their targets. Um, and, and we can talk a little bit about spring admission, which you did at USC and, and return to the wait list. And you know, I think Sally and Kara, they talked about sort of the student perspective, um, how students can approach the wait list, what you can do if you want to enhance your chances of getting off the wait list. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about how colleges approach the wait list and why they use them. Does that sound all right with you? Oh, that sounds lovely. Although, as you said, you know, USC, we practiced spring admission. That was our own form of enrollment management. And we actually did not use a wait list. Um, which, so I don't have experience with that. Um, it seems like it does cause a lot of agony and stress for students. So, Ed Reed, I know you had some experience with this. And from the non-waitlist perspective, um, if you can just explain to, you know, to me and to families and to students, like, how does this whole process work? If you're told, hey, it's time to move students off the waitlist, like, what did you do at Reed? What was your first step? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you, you almost want to rewind back to the committee and think about some of those students that were so marginal, where you were excited by them, but you couldn't take them because of the size of the class and, and wanting to hit those targets. And so there were often students that you loved that just didn't make the cut for whatever reason, and, and they end up with a waitlist decision. And whether that student got a waitlist because you love them, they didn't make the class, or they got a waitlist because you really didn't like them, but you had to sort of maintain a political relationship with the family, uh, there's no way of knowing. Um, but it is important to note that admission officers generally have students that they really like, who they connected with through the application process, who stood out to them for academic reasons, extracurricular background, maybe their letters were really strong. But for whatever reason, the class is so selective that, that you don't have space for them at least the first time around. 
So when it comes time to actually start making offers off the wait list, the dean usually says around mid to late April, it looks like we're going to be coming up short in terms of hitting our target. Let's say our target is 350 incoming freshmen, and we have 300 deposits so far, which means we're coming up short. Usually by this time, we're a lot closer to 350. So what I want you to do is each of you counselors, go ahead and bring me five students from your region on the wait list that you think would accept an offer. And it's really important at that stage that you have a strong belief uh, or knowledge that a student continues to be interested and is likely to accept the offer because ultimately you want butts in the seats. Uh, you want to get a student in that class. You're not just looking to sort of cast a wide net and, and hope that a certain percentage of students get in. And so when you gave these five students to the dean, did you rank them in a certain order? And was the wait list overall ranked in any way? It was never ranked, but just the effort that it would take to go ahead and rank students who are on the wait list, I think, is not worth the payoff. But you do have sort of a mental sense of, okay, here are the students that I prefer and why. And there are often other factors associated with their viability off the wait list, whether they can afford to pay the full tuition, um, whether there is a connection to a school group, for example. If there's a school, high school, that sends a lot of students to a particular college, you might give preference to students from that group. Um, there might be, you know, you have a counselor, high school counselor, who's really advocating hard for their student because they love that school. That's something that weighs into it. So there's never a formal ranking, but there are ways for students to sort of catch the attention of the admission officer who will be their advocate to the dean. Um, and there were some cases where people from other regions would get six, seven, eight kids off the wait list, and somebody from a region uh, in another part of the country might get no kids off the wait list. So it's all about sort of the relative strength of the students' profiles um, as compared to the entire pool. Now, you mentioned now, need as a factor, which I, I think is because Reed yeah. was a need-aware college. Is right. that right? That's right. Um, Reed and is so very if the school is need-blind, could you assume that on the wait list they're probably going to stay need-blind? I would think so. Most schools that are need blind tend to be pretty, they've got a great endowment and so they don't necessarily need to worry about those kinds of things. Um, so I don't think that they're, if they are need blind, they're, they're probably going to stay need blind through the, through the wait list process as well. Um, it's okay still to say that you don't require any financial aid. It, it might help make the process a little bit more seamless in terms of the transition uh, and accepting that offer. But I don't think that you need to go out of your way to make that case for say, an IV that, that is uh, need-blind and, and tends to do really well with need-based financial aid. Yeah, and you mentioned, um, you know, a certain region might see a lot of students move off the wait list, a certain region might not, and that brings up this idea of institutional needs, which I don't know if everybody knows what that means. Like, what is an institutional need? What are some of the different ones that came into play at Reed? Well, there, I mean, you... You have a different background on this because at USC, obviously, you've got athletics. We never had athletics at Reed. Um, you've got uh, many Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you play ultimate frisbee, Ian? <laughs> I did. Okay, so <laughs> we had the best sport, but that was the only sport. Uh, well, we, did, we also had rugby, um, but we don't need to talk about those guys. Um, so it was ultimate and rugby, but no varsity sports at Reed. And so institutional priorities for us mostly had to do with diversity uh, in terms of racial and ethnic diversity, geographic diversity, and then and then funding as well. I mean, just students that could come in and afford to pay the full tuition were really helpful for us as an institution that needed a certain percentage of, of you know, students that could pay the full tuition to keep the college operating every year. But at USC, 
you've got a lot of different colleges. You've got, um, you know, you've got your school of engineering, you've got your school of liberal arts and sciences, you've got the communications. There's a lot of different things. How do you think about sort of institutional priorities in at USC and how did that affect your spring admission process? Sure. So just to get into what, what spring admission is at USC and what it is at some schools. So rather than place students on a wait list, we would offer some students who had applied for fall admission we would instead offer them spring admission. And there were usually a few reasons that you were placed in spring and kind of the similar reasons you're talking about with wait lists. Like sometimes, more often than not, it was a student who you really loved on paper or maybe you met them in person and you thought they were great and had great personal qualities. But when it came to the quantitative factors of their application, usually a test score, they were on the low end for being admissible to USC. But you really wanted them there. And so you would offer them the spring spot. It was like your way of sneaking in these hidden gems of students. Um, not really sneaking. The dean was fully aware of it. But it was a way to <laughs> offer opportunity to a student who otherwise might not have gotten that fall chance. Um, right. And then sometimes it was a little bit. It was a little bit political, and it was based on alumni and relationships and and things like that. But generally, it was it was you know pretty flattering to be offered spring, especially if you knew quantitatively you were not the strongest candidate. And so what would happen there is you did have a chance to be moved from spring to fall. If the yield turned out to be a little low, there would be some movement from spring to fall, and that was based on institutional factors. It wasn't so much based on depleting emails or the interest. I would have loved to consider that stuff, but the word on who to move from spring to fall came from on high. It was not my decision, and that was really based usually on geography um, to make sure there was this even representation or somewhat even representation of a lot of states and countries. Um, just to make sure maybe the gender ratio wasn't too skewed. We tended at USC, sure. like a lot of universities, to overall have a larger admitted class of women the last decade, I would say, than men. Um, so mm-hmm. sometimes they're trying to make that a little more even. And sometimes it would be um, certain departments or schools on the campus might be yielding a little bit low. So for a particular school, like let's say architecture was having a slower year, then that meant if you were a spring architecture student, mm-hmm. you were probably you know, you had a better chance of being bumped to the fall. So it was stuff that was out of the student's control, which I know is frustrating to hear, but it's enrollment management. Like, that's what it is. It's kind of a a backup way to, as you said, get the butts in seats. Yeah, and people, I I think that's an important thing for families to understand is that ultimately colleges and admission offices are responsible for bringing in a new class. That sort of is their sole objective. You've got to bring in the best class that you possibly can. And there are a lot of different mechanisms that they use to make this happen, whether it's spring enrollment, whether it's a wait list, whether it's early decision, right, which gives you an opportunity to lock in some, some people in the class early on. So this is all about an office that's trying to hit their their target. Um, when you were looking at students that moved from spring to fall, was that did you have to have enrolled by that point? Was that a decision that was made over the summer, or was it often made in this April to May period where there's a lot of uncertainty for students? Um, for USC, it wasn't that you would enroll for spring that early, but you did return a, a postcard or check a box online that said, "Yeah, I'm. I want to. I want to come to spring." I'm interested in doing that. And if you let us know that, then your chances of moving to fall were obviously greater. The registration, the actual enrollment was a little bit later because it is spring and we know that some students are going to go ahead and enroll for the first semester at maybe a community college or another university. Or there was an overseas study program that students could take part in for their first semester. So this is kind of similar to Northeastern has a program called NUN that is kind of similar to this where, yeah, you're admitted to USC or Northeastern, but technically for the first semester, you're going to go overseas to a partner university 
and take classes there. So for USC, I believe it started off with a school in Paris and a school in London. Might have expanded since then. Just a chance for students to have the full university experience, get in some study abroad, and save their space at USC for the spring. And that, and that helps, I think, you know, hit those targets. Um, it also saves, um, it, it keeps the college from having to do a lot of work with with transfer admissions because they've got more students coming in in the fall to help fill that class and, and deal with any sort of retention issues that you might see in that first semester. Um, and it helps with the numbers. And you've raised a couple of interesting points just in your answers. I don't know if you knew that you were raising interesting points or not. Um, I, probably I'm you were constantly aware. raising interesting points. Yeah, what I do. It's just, yeah. it's just habit at this point, I suppose. Um, But uh, a couple of interesting points just around um, both statistics uh, and and some of the numbers that you can see with different schools um, that we were talking about before we got on here and just whether there's a likelihood that you're going to be offered a space. And then also, I'm, I'm interested in exploring some of the differences between different schools. So, you know, you apply, you're waitlisted at Berkeley. What's the difference between being waitlisted for the College of Letters and Sciences versus being waitlisted for the College of Engineering? Um, And I don't know that I have an answer for that um, or whether you do, but I am sort of interested in talking about the numbers, which we do have some numbers to look at. Um, Do you want to share, what were we talking about? Carnegie Mellon is one example of sort of a dire waitlist um, situation. Yeah, as far as, uh, as the colleges within the UC, boy, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you there. I, and I don't know that that information is publicly available, right? I think the UCs are great with transparency in their admission process in so many ways. I, I don't know if they publish something quite that specific. So that might they, involve some, some digging around or some phone calls. But the general numbers... Yeah. Okay. But the general numbers, the, the waitlist statistics that are out there for universities, most of that information is publicly available but it can be kind of a pain to find. You can find it by doing searches and maybe seeing a campus newspaper article that comes out in May or April about that year's admission statistics that features a kind of puffy interview with the dean. You can usually find that. But if you want for what right now is the most up-to-date comprehensive resource that we've been looking at um, at College Coach is the, the blog for Princeton Review. And they have a recent article just published a few days ago that claims to have the most up-to-date waitlist statistics and that seems to be pretty accurate um, this is some information that College Board also provides and updates over the years um, as part of their big future portion of their website. Um, and you can see the numbers. You can take a look and see there's this huge disparity between waitlist movement from college to college. That's why just like the admission process initially, it's just different from school to school. You know, every question that we get asked so many times, we have to say, well, it depends. Right. This is very much a well, it depends type of question. So, for example, you know, I can look on here and see that it looks like in the last year, like American University, they must have really hit their targets because they did not move anybody off the wait list. Whereas if you were on the wait list last year at Baylor, you had a 92% chance of moving off of the wait list and being admitted. So definitely varies from school to school. Um, you know, Carnegie Mellon is one that does practice the wait list, and they even have something called a priority wait list where you say, hey, put me on your wait list, and I promise that if you admit me, I'm going to enroll. So I'll take my deposit away from the other school I deposited at. I will come to Carnegie Mellon. However, even if you put yourself on the line for that, just know that last year they moved only four students off of their wait list for a 0.1 percentage movement rate. Yeah, I think there were about 1,500 students that accepted places on the wait list at Carnegie Mellon. Like, it's it, it was crazy. And then I was looking this up for, what was it? 
2,800. They offered wait lists to about 5,600 students. 2,800 said yes. I don't know how many were on the priority wait list, but I would assume the measly four that did get in were probably on that priority wait list. You can bet, yeah, they probably went to those priority students. And this is a great, I mean, it's a really interesting contrast with UC Berkeley. I was looking up these numbers for a student of mine that got waitlisted at a couple of these schools. Berkeley offered the waitlist, I want to say, to about 6,000 students, about 3,000 accepted, about 2,000 were admitted. That's a huge number to have 2,000 students coming in off the wait list. And, and I do want to, we have about a minute uh, minute or two left in the segment, but I do want to sort of make a brief mention of the UC system uh, because I think of the problem that we saw with Irvine last year over-enrolling and having to actually rescind some admission offers. There was some controversy there, and you can find that information in the news. Um, I think the UCs in general are, were a little bit, reticent to over-enroll this year. And so you might see some more waitlist action from the UCs this year than you've seen in the past. Um, you might see consistency with, with the past. And Emily, you said it depends. It, it doesn't just depend on the institution. It also depends year over year whether you're hitting your targets. You know, one year at Reed, we didn't use the waitlist at all. The next year, we had to bring in 60 people off the waitlist because of the sort of variance um, between those different classes and, and the ability to hit their targets. Um, is there anything that you want to say sort of as we, we draw to the close of this segment to connect student um, agency with the enrollment management things that we're discussing right now, advice for students to carry forward? Sure. And, and to get more in-depth on this, I know just recently on the show that Sally talked about what to do if you're waitlisted, the student action that you can take. So you can go back and listen to that as well. But I do think the first thing is, of course, yes, click the link that says you want to be on the wait list, check the box, whatever it is. Um, and then if you are really antsy, you do want to show this extra interest, especially when it comes to some of these private universities or smaller schools. Yeah, you can email your admission officer. You can have your high school counselor call the admission officer and reiterate your interest. And those are all great things to do. But at the end of the day, at the end of, of April, you need to be happy right. with the place where you're depositing and feel really good about it and take yourself off the wait list for some other schools who, if that school that you're waitlisted for, if they called you up and said, hey, you're in, you've got two hours to decide, if you don't know in your heart that you would say yes and take them up on the offer, then take yourself off the wait list and just get it out of your head, focus on the future and your new home for the next four years and just get excited about it. That's right. I think that that's, that's terrific advice. Uh, a great place to end it. I, I, I will say that show with Sally was two weeks ago, so you can go back into our archives. It's not long ago at all to hear a little bit about how students can approach the uh, admissions offices and make their cases to them. Uh, Emily, I want to thank you for your support and your patience with me, as always, uh, through this process and every other process. But it's always a delight to have you on the show. Thanks, Ian. I'm going to go eat some gluten. Have a great day. All right. That sounds um, darn it. Okay, folks, grab a pencil and a legal <laughs> pad because it's time to think about composing that college list. Emily and I decided that's how you would do it with a pencil and legal pad. Uh, when we come back, we'll be welcoming our list guru, Julia Jones, to the show to talk about the ins and outs of building something that works for your college goals. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests and new happenings at the voice America talk radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, before we introduce our next guest, I'd like to take a moment for a school spotlight. And, and these spotlights, I want to sort of add, these are all available on our blog. Um, and they can be really helpful for you if you want to learn a little bit about schools that maybe you, you don't know much about. Um, they're a great way to sort of think about populating your college list and just learning about the options. So let's talk today about uh, the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Known the world over for conducting state-of-the-art research in medicine, science, and engineering, Johns Hopkins University attracts active and engaged learners to its historic Charles Village campus. Nearly 6,000 undergrads and 17,000 graduate students call JHU home, and they come from all 50 states in almost 60 different countries. While the majority of students enroll in the School of Arts and Sciences or Engineering, the university also sponsors top-notch programs in nursing, business, and music. The Peabody Institute offers conservatory-level instruction in music performance, music education, and recording arts and sciences. With annual research expenditures of over $1.9 billion, that's billion with a B, JHU firmly believes that undergraduates should have access to hands-on research opportunities. Thanks to research programs and fellowships, undergrads can earn up to $10,000 to work directly with faculty mentors on original research projects. Recent award recipients have studied everything from HIV prevention and Asian American identity to water scarcity and schizophrenia. Fun fact, the Blue Jays compete on 24 varsity athletic teams, 22 D3 sports, including fencing, water polo, and wrestling, as well as D1 men's and women's lacrosse. And I know that Johns Hopkins is one of those schools that's really popular with our students when we build our college lists. And that is a process that is headed up by my colleague, Julia Jones, uh, who's joining us today. Welcome to the show, Julia. Hey, Ian. How's it going? It's going really well. Uh, We're in the list building time of year. um, And students (laughs) are starting to think about uh, where they'd like to apply to college. So 
let's start with just this sort of idea. You know, I was on a, a phone call yesterday with a family and they were just starting the process and they wanted to think a little bit about what was out there. So what are some right. of just the general factors to consider as you get yeah. going on the college list process? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I think as with any big decision or big purchase that you make, I mean, there are a lot of things, and, and there's never, you know, every person's different in terms of what's going to be important to them. Sure. Um, you know, what are the, the criteria that, that's going to be most important to you may be very different from your best friend or even your brother or your sister. Um, but, you know, some some basic ways that you can kind of narrow it down. I mean, there are, you know, 3,000 colleges and universities in this country, so, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I even, you know, get to it? shorter list of that, of the, a more manageable list is, you know, think about location, um, you know, size, setting, things that, you know, will at least just kind of give a sense of place to, to your, to your college campus too. And, and that, and that can be often a good, a good starting point to see location often is the easiest one. It's like, okay, how far away from home do you right. want to be? How close to home do you want to be? Um, and think, you know, the conversations of, of that nature can at least help you to determine what part of the country you're looking at and, and, uh, and that may help, help you at least focus. Yeah. I, some of my the parents I talked to, they're like, location, that seems so trivial. Like, what, don't you want to go to the best school? And it's like, well, maybe that's not the decision <laughs> that you make when you're choosing between your final two options, but it's a great right. starting point because as you said, with 3000 college universities, if you can say, I want to stay on the West coast, well, that narrows it down to a hundred, 200 schools. Um, and yeah. so what you're doing is you're just trying to get rid of some options. Uh, exactly. So you can focus yeah. on what you do there, like. I mean, I think what parents, families don't realize is, or maybe you do, but I mean, there are great colleges everywhere. So, you know, that can be for some students a really good way to at least, okay, so let's, let's look at the great colleges on the West Coast, you know, and that, right. um, the, the, the other thought I have too is in some students, you know, they, they'll tell me states, you know, they say, okay, I want to go to Pennsylvania. I want to go to Michigan. And those are because they know of schools in those states. Right. And, right. you know, what I throw back at them is, okay, well, let's think about it this way. You know, how far away from home do you want to be? In other words, how often do you think you'll go home for the weekend, you know, for, or how often do you think you'll go home when you're at school? Um, do you right. want to be able to go home for a weekend? Do you want, you know, to be able to go home for homecoming weekend if that's important to you? So part of it is a conversation more about what's, you know, what are your values? What are you, what's important to you? You know, some students are homebodies and want to really stay within a, a certain radius of home. Some students are like, hell, I, heck, I can go anywhere. You know, I, I want to be right. adventurous. I want to see a different part of the country. Um, I, and and so, so I think you have to think about logistics as well. Right. And it's, it's not yeah. just, uh, do I want to live near the beach or in the mountains? But the logistics side, I think, is a really an important way of, of phrasing the location, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in the next state over, but it's, it's mm -hmm. an eight-hour drive to get there, that's perhaps a longer travel time than, you know, somewhere that is a two-hour flight uh, because yep. you can get to the airport and fly, but that, that might be a little bit more expensive and you want to think about costs that are associated with that. Um, mm -hmm. So, that, you know, there are a lot of pieces that go into it and I think location is always a great, great place to start. Um, yeah. Julia, one of the things I think that students have a hard time with is the big versus small distinction. Um, yeah. You know, do I want to go to a big school or a small school? Most of the ways we interact with college and popular culture, it's big schools. Not a lot of students mm -hmm. get exposure to small schools. Um, how can you get a sense for what the right fit for you is in, in that context? Yeah. It's 
hard. And I think sometimes it's also about, okay, what does big mean? Is it big campus, as in, you know, geography, or, or is it a big campus in terms of number of students? Um, because there are some small schools that feel big because their campus is more spread out. So mm-hmm. it's, or in a big city, a small school in a big city can feel bigger than it is. So, um, but I, I think that sometimes those questions, once you've started to tackle location a little bit, um, it's hard to know for many students until you actually get in, get on a campus or two. Um, you know, for parents, you can probably relate to, you know, the, when you remember when you bought your, your house or, you know, it's, it's, you don't know what you're looking for in a house until you kind of look at a few and, and, and try right. a few different, different, uh, you know, just, just go visit a few different places. So I really encourage students, um, early in the process, even before junior year, if they can, to, you know, to, to get out on some campuses and just see, you know, start locally, you know, so you're not booking plane tickets, you know, uh, right up the bat, off the bat, but, um, you know, even if you want to go away to college, start with the with the different colleges that are in your backyard, yes. and you know, and see see what a big school looks like, see what a small school feels like to you, um, you know, and then just and all the different iterations there. You know, what's a city school? You know, uh, if there's one that's rural, um, if you happen to be on vacation and and there's a great college nearby, you know, take a take an afternoon and do a college tour because I think that that can can really help to drive what you're looking for, what you like and don't like, um, especially when it comes to size. It's hard to know sometimes what, you know, what a big school feels like, especially if you're yes. not used to it. If you come from a very small high school, it's all relative, too. A big school is, you know, it's, it's maybe just, you know, slightly larger than your high school, and, and for some students that it, it, it doesn't, it can really, really depend on the student in terms of what that means. Absolutely. I love the, I always love that real yeah. estate analogy. I mean, when I, when we were looking at buying our, our first house, a real estate agent said, I want you to see as many homes as possible because you don't yeah. know what you want until you get examples. And mm-hmm. we all, you know, we all live in homes, whether they're apartments or houses or whatever. So we have a concept of those, but high mm-hmm. school students don't get exposure to colleges all that often. And so you really have to get to some campuses. And the beauty of the number of options out there is that there are definitely options that you can get to in a short drive to see what small versus big looks like. And even if you know your child wants to go away, uh, it's Mm -hmm. okay to see the school down the street to say, okay, well, what if this school existed you know, many hours away. Is this the kind of thing you want? You can sort of play with things in a thought experiment in that way. Exactly, exactly. And you never know. You may also find that, wow, okay, the school down the street is is really cool and then you you know and 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 I think I sometimes have to have to really tell students you know just because you're going to school uh, you know a few minutes from home you're not going to be going home every weekend your parents are not right. going to be showing up in your dorm <laughs> they have better things to do as well so I think that, right. you know that is you sometimes you you discount the the school down the street just because it's it's so close to home and I'm like well you know that's it's a good place to start no matter what and and you never know sometimes think you get surprised on those initial college visits and, and often you get sick of the cafeteria food, so it's not so bad to get home and, and have a meal that your mom can make for you, too. Um, exactly. Now, we're talking a, a lot about sort of putting your, your feet on campus and walking around and having a look at it. But, you know, that's hard once you get that first look and you figure a little bit about big, small, urban, rural, et cetera. Now it's yeah. time to start to think about researching schools that you can't get to quite so easily. What are some resources that students can use to start to investigate their other possibilities a little bit more, um, and mm-hmm. what are they kind of looking for when they're using those resources on the web? 
Right, right. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, there are, there are web, websites, um, and, you know, and we've talked about those in the past as well, and, and so, you know, ones that you actually, I think you even talked about in your last segment that can be great, great resources to learn more about colleges, you know, Princeton Review, um, their website, Big Future, um, so colleges themselves, their, their own websites have, you know, there's some great resources that you can often do a virtual tour for what it's worth to at least see the, see what the campus looks like and feels like, um, and, and, you know, even websites that have more opinions about, you know, that you kind of have to take them with a little bit of a grain of salt. Sometimes it's, you know, and, and so I, I would tell students, you know, compare different opinions and subjective websites just so that you're just getting, you know, you're starting to see what trends are, are happening there. Like niche.com is a good one that um, I think does have some, some good uh, insight into schools sometimes. So so it's trying, you know, you can do uh, some, some research without actually, you know, physically visiting every college, which is not always, not really possible especially if you're right. looking at a lot of different places around the country. So, yeah, um, and sometimes, you know, check your, you, go, you know, they're often um, students in your high school um, or, you know, in your kind of network of friends that you may know who, you know, have gone to that college and maybe there's a way to reach out to them. Sometimes a guidance counselor or a college counselor um, at your school might be able to put you in touch with a, a recent grad who, who is at a college, and that can be a great way to get a sense of what their experience has been, especially coming from your high school. Yeah. So, yeah. I so as you go and you look at these resources and you look at sort of the things that you're hearing and maybe you talk to your counselor and other students. The question of sort of numbers always comes into play. What's the average SAT or ACT? What's the average mm-hmm. GPA? At what yep. point should students be paying attention to that stuff as they're investigating yeah. schools and and to what degree does that help them just in the initial sort of process of of looking for colleges? Right. Well, I mean, I think you want to be conscious of it, you know, even even at the very beginning. Um, you know, I think in your early visits, it's, it should be about more about okay, just what's convenient and where what's nearby. But but obviously, you want to have take a realistic assessment of of your academics and and what your SATs or uh, uh, ACT scores are going to look like and how that might compare. Um, because obviously, building a list, you want to you know have schools that are realistic, even if some of them may be um, you know a little bit more. Of a stretch. Some are going to be easier to get into. Some are going to be, you know, kind of right in that target range. Um, so, so, and and then that's really our philosophy that goes behind putting a list together is that you have, you know, you have some balance there. And I think you have to, you know, there's really not a lot of point to visiting a school where you know you're going to be so far below the average accepted applicant that it's really not going to be um, a, a realistic option. Because you know, yeah. again, the challenge is you could fall in love with that school, and that's that's a hard, sometimes a harsher reality to face. Then. So, um, so I think it's it's uh, um, you've, you've got to kind of look at that and and just and see it. It, it doesn't have to t- in those initial visits. It doesn't have to be the most important factor, but I do think that it is something to be aware of. You know, are right. knowing that you're going to have to have schools. You know, some schools that are going to be um, you know those no problem schools where where it's going to be easier for you to get into. And where you have a higher likelihood also of scholarship. And then also, you know, again, no, stretch schools where you know, okay, I may be a little bit below the average, but, but there's still, you know, it, it, I'm not that far below the bar. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much, we go back to that real estate example, you want to stay within your budget. And you yeah. might have a low end and a high end of what you're willing to spend on a house. Um, but you sort of, there's a sweet spot. Um, and you can figure that out as time goes on and you keep looking looking for a home. And, and there's there sort of is a budget in terms of your student profile as well. And you can make mm-hmm. it work towards that high end, um, but it, it becomes more and more of a stretch to kind of make that happen. Um, and yeah. unlike the property brothers who like to show people a house that's way out of their price <laughs> range just to sort of get them going yeah. and say, by the way, you can't afford this. It's not always <laughs> a great thing to go and see a Stanford or a Harvard and then say, by the way, you know, you, you don't have the grades or the scores for this school. So it is helpful to, right. I think, to have some guidance on, on looking at schools. Um, sure. Julia, just before we've got about two minutes left, um, I wanted to ask you in terms of timeline, where should students be right now in terms of like the number of schools that they're kind of looking at and researching or, or that are on their list? And where should they be at the start of the summer? And then where do you yeah. hope that they are by the end of the summer? Right. Well, I mean, if we're talking about juniors, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that they should probably be, uh, you know, hopefully they've visited some schools and have a sense of, you know, even if it's, if it's not necessarily a number of schools, you know, they may have a larger list, but that they have a sense of, of what are the important factors. I think for me that's more important. It's like not, you know, I think, you know, if you can boil it down to what are the three most important things, the must-haves that any school on my list, you know, is, is going to be, that could be major, that could be, you know, I mean, they must have a great football team, that could be, you know, they have to have uh, um, communications as a major, it can be, um, they have to be within 200 miles of home, but whatever those yeah. are, that's what I think they should be starting to, to d- define. Um, by the start of the summer, I think it's, it's you know, that they should be refining their list a little bit more, maybe have a, 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 gr- a list of schools that they've already seen and what and that they are kind of putting on their short list, um, and maybe a a, a, a list of schools that they want to you know, continue to visit or maybe that they want to revisit in the fall. Um, by the end of the summer, I think my goal for when I, whenever I work with students is that, you know, the hope is that by the end of the summer, they, they have a pretty, you know, good solid list of colleges. They, you know, they may add a two or add or subtract one or two, but that they have a real, a plan going forward because obviously that's where, you know, they're going to be starting to put together all the other components of, okay, how, how do I apply to these schools? Where do I apply? When do I apply? And all of those, those other factors. So, so I think it's really using, you know, the spring and summer to, to start to narrow it down to get to that close to final list by the end of the summer. That's perfect. That, that's like, that's exactly where I like to have my, my students by the end of the summer. And I think that that's really ideal. And, uh, Thank you, Julia, for, for coming on the show and for helping us to make such great lists for our students that we work with. I, I want to say that, you know, my students, I thought that the placements, as we saw the decisions come back this spring, the placements of where our list team put schools in terms of safety target reach were, were just spot on. Um, so well done. Thanks for your great work. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to stop using that money analogy with real estate to talk about the college list and talk about actually the cost of college and how that fits into the list making process. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, we just had a great segment with Julia Jones talking all about the college list and how to begin looking at colleges, researching them, visiting. And of course, there's a big component of college that comes into play, and that's how much it's going to cost. Uh, and so helping us to talk a little bit about how the concept of cost and financial aid and scholarships might fit into the college list building process is Kathy Ruby, who I think is still out east but we'll yeah. be making her way to the Midwest fairly soon. And it'll be great to have you a little bit closer to the West Coast. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thanks, Ian. Glad to be here. All right. So when we talk about a college list and we talk about financial considerations, I don't know if you heard me, but I was drawing analogies to buying a house and your price range <laughs> and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. But I don't know if that actually holds true for uh, the list building process. So when we talk about financial considerations, is it, is it like that or what, what do we mean? Well, it's, it's like that in that, you know, you have to figure out what you can afford and what your family can afford for each of your students. But, but it's not as simple because, <clears throat> you know, when you buy a house, the house costs what the house costs. But when you, when a student goes to college, the colleges charge a certain price, what we might call their sticker price, but then many, many students receive some kind of a discount on that sticker price. So um, it might be based on financial need, or it might be based on academic merit, um, <clears throat> but most students receive some sort of a scholarship or grant to discount that price. So on the one hand, we would say don't ever eliminate a college just based on the sticker price because you don't really know what discount that college is going to give you until you're actually admitted um, and they present you with some sort of a package. Um, so we would say don't eliminate based on sticker price because sometimes the most expensive colleges can end up being very affordable depending on your family, um, your family situation. But on the other hand, you do want to make sure that you have viable, affordable options for your student 
um, to choose from in March and April because, you know, you don't want the, the awful situation of your students accepted to a bunch of schools and you can't afford any of them. Um, right. So you've got to find a happy medium in there, and we'll talk about that. So I had this exact conversation with the family uh, looking at my calendar. I think it was yesterday. Uh, and so I'm very hopeful to hear whether I gave them any good advice around how to figure this stuff out. I did tell them, hey, why don't you call up our finance team? Because Kathy Ruby knows <laughs> knows this stuff. Uh, but just as sort of a teaser, uh, talked a little bit about how they might be able to anticipate the discount. But what do you do to anticipate a discount? What are some of the resources that you can use to say, well, this sticker price is really high. That one's lower. How do you make sense of those two numbers? Okay. It's a... It's a it's a complicated answer, but um, let's tackle first the need-based side of things. So remember, there are two reasons that colleges give discounts. One is based on financial need, and then the other on merit. So we'll talk about financial need first. And essentially, financial need is the cost of the school annually, less the expected family contribution, um, which is calculated when you fill out the FAFSA or for some schools, the CSS profile. So if a college costs $70,000 and your EFC or your expected family contribution is $40,000, that means your financial need is $30,000. So first you want to get a sense of what your expected family contribution is. And the good news is there are calculators out there that can help you with that. Um, Our favorite is the one on the college boards website. Um, It's called bigfuture.collegeboard.org, and they have a section of tools and calculators, and so they have an EFC calculator. So you can can put in some information about your income and your assets and your household, and they'll give you an estimate of your EFC. Um, But I just want to add that Big Future has has been mentioned two or three times on this show today (laughs) uh, in three different segments. So if you have not bookmarked that website yet, Go bookmark it. There are so many good resources, uh, so many good uh, pieces of information on that website, bigfuture.collegeboard.org. Please go bookmark it. Okay. Yeah, Sorry to interrupt. It's an, it's an awesome resource. Um, so the problem with figuring out your EFC or just your EFC is that that tells you what your financial need might be at a particular college, you know, mm-hmm. once you know their costs, which you can get on the Big Future website. Um, but the problem is most colleges don't meet the full need of every student who is admitted. So, mm-hmm. um, and the Big Future website can give you some information on, you know, what percent of students they do meet need for and on average how much of need they meet. But for instance, public universities can't meet the need of everyone who's admitted for the most part. So um, so the key is to then go to the college's website, and they're all required to have something called a net price calculator, which will estimate your need-based financial aid eligibility there. Sometimes they'll add in information about merit scholarships, but at a minimum, they have to give you an estimate of your need-based grant and scholarship eligibility. So go to any college's website, search for net price calculator, and that will give you a sense of your need-based eligibility at that particular college. Okay, so I feel confident I didn't give bad advice to this family uh, that I spoke with yesterday. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Goodness, I listened to you, Kathy. All right, but what about the merit side of things? So you're talking all about financial need, and a lot of families might say, well, we're not going to qualify for aid, or we're, we're going to qualify for a small amount, uh, and so they're hopeful on the merit side. So what do you do uh, to sort of anticipate those kinds of scholarships? 
Okay, and that is that is the million-dollar question. We often get a question from families, you know, is there a list of colleges that offer merit scholarships and how oh, much nice. they give? Um, and unfortunately, there is no one list because colleges change their policies from year to year based on how they're trying to attract students and how they're trying to enroll students because remember that merit scholarships are offered um, to entice students to enroll. That is why colleges offer them. So first, you have to establish whether a particular college offers merit scholarships. And the more selective a particular college or a program is, um, the less likely it is that they offer merit scholarships because they don't have to entice anyone to enroll. They're very popular um, and people are willing to pay the full price. Um, there is a website. It's a fairly um, fairly new website called um, collegedata.com. And you can actually filter on colleges based on what percentage of students they offer merit aid to. Um, because some colleges will offer merit aid to the very top of their applicant pool, you know, the top 5%, top 10%. Other colleges might offer to half of the applicant pool. Others might offer to the full applicant pool. Everybody who gets in gets something. Um, so it really depends on how the college is competing in the marketplace of higher education. And that website can give you a start. Um, and then you have to figure out, will my student receive it? So you have to look at that data that Julia was talking about um, in terms of, you know, where does my student fit? Are they in the middle of this applicant pool? Are they in the top quartile? You know, how competitive is my student at this school? Um, and then also don't be afraid to ask the college while you're visiting. Um, I, you can't really ask the tour guide because they're not going to know, but during an information session, feel free to ask, you know, uh, you should have done your research ahead of time to know whether they offer merit scholarships, but then you can ask the question, can you give me an idea? What's the profile of a student who might receive a merit scholarship at this school? Perfect. So there are a lot of different pieces that go go into that merit side. It seems like it's just, you got to sort of ask questions, do a little bit of research. I would also say, I hear this sometimes from, from families that they're looking at schools where their student is in that top quartile or near the top of the middle 50%, but it's a school that is very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. Even if you're in the top quartile at an Ivy or right. at uh, Stanford, that doesn't mean that you're going to get merit scholarships because they don't offer them. Um, so right. for those schools that are really, really selective, there's necessarily uh, a sort of segmentation of how the, you know, the numbers play out in terms of scores and grades. Um, doesn't mean that you're going to qualify for a scholarship if you're in that top quartile. No, and the other the other example is there are programs within a particular college that might be more competitive than. The, the college on average. So engineering, for instance. So you might look right. at the profile of a school and it looks like you're in the top quartile. Well, that's great, but actually you're competing with engineering students and it's a really competitive engineering program. So maybe they're not offering scholarships to engineering majors because they have enough of those and they have enough people who are willing to pay. And maybe they're offering scholarships to history majors because they need to fill their history classes. Right. Right. So and that's, it, that's, it really can depend. Yep. That dovetails nicely with something that uh, Emily said in our first segment, which is that colleges don't provide data that breaks down um, the numbers by college within their university. They don't say, here are the numbers for our College of Engineering versus our College of Letters and Sciences, whether we're talking about a wait list or we're talking mm -hmm. about scholarships or we're talking about test scores. So you have to sort of use your best guess to think about how those numbers might shift for a student that is applying for a more selective program within the university. Yes. Um, and 
And that's that's actually the problem with the Big Future website. It gives you an average non-need-based aid is what they call it, which is code for merit scholarship, but they don't tell you the denominator and they don't tell you who the money is given to. So it's just a starting point. Great. So let's talk about the finishing point. What should the final list look like if money matters to me and my family? What are some important considerations that I need to follow when I'm deciding where to apply? So, um, well, I have a colleague who describes it this way when she's talking about the college list, when money matters. Um, And especially for middle-income families and upper-middle-income families who may not be qualifying for much need-based financial aid. Um, So remember, you're more likely to get married aid at the places that want you the most. So she talks about your list being a pyramid where you may have three to five schools that are going to be those safety schools that you know you're going to get into and they're going to want to attract you. Um, And then maybe three to five of your target schools, on-target schools, whatever whatever we call them, um, and then a couple of the challenging schools um, so that you really are sort of padding the list at the bottom if you're trying to maximize your scholarships. Um, because when people tell me, how can I get, or they ask me, how can I get scholarships for, for college, it's really all about the list of colleges that you put together. So think of it as a pyramid as opposed to an even distribution. Um, you may also want to have an, your affordable in-state school on the list. If you know that's going to be affordable, um, you may want to make sure that that's on the list so that you're sure you have an affordable option. If, you, if you're if you not comfortable with some, you know, with a lot of higher cost privates um, in that in that bottom part of the pyramid. Um, and then the other piece of this is make sure you're talking with your student about this. Um, there's nothing worse than having to tell your student on April 15th that, no, actually, you can't go to that dream school um, that you've fallen in love with. Really manage expectations up front. And I, I'm sure, I didn't hear the beginning of your segment, but I'm sure, Julia, we always talk about how as you put your list together, it you have to be happy to attend any of the schools on your list, happy to put that sweatshirt on. So manage that expectation with your student that, you know, money is going to matter and you can apply anywhere you want to go. But we want to make sure we have good financial options on your list. And in the end, we will have to compare financial aid offers and scholarship offers to see which place we can afford. Yeah, I'm sure it's just an accident that April 15th is also tax day, the day you tell your kid, you know what, I'm not going to be able to afford that college. Um, I'm sure hopefully it doesn't shake out that way. Uh, And I will add that, you know, I talk to a lot of students when you, the schools you tend to get excited about form more of an inverted pyramid where you got mm-hmm. the most challenging schools up at the top. I think that's natural. We aspire to get into schools that are challenging because we're, we think that we'll be more proud of that. But I think you want to think about it more as the experience, giving yourself options, and especially where financial aid comes into the process, thinking about turning that pyramid right side up uh, and, and putting a mm-hmm. nice firm base on the ground for you. Uh, Kathy, Thank you so much for, for coming on the show and, and helping us to see how these financial pieces fit into the list. You're welcome. All right, that does it for today. Next week, Cambridge, Oxford, St. Andrews will be welcoming a special guest from the United Kingdom to talk about programs in the UK. So you should tune in if you're at all interested in studying across the pond for your college education. We'll also take a look at standardized testing to help you get a sense for when you can put those pencils down and focus on other aspects of your college process. This is going to be a great segment for you juniors who are maybe considering taking the exam just one more time to see how you do. 
We'll tell you if you think it's a good idea. And finally, we will dive into the concept of payment plans for college tuition. What are the highs and lows? Join Beth Heaton and guests for a trip all over the map next week. In the meantime, you can find us on our website at getintocollege.com if you're curious what we look like or you just want some more information about our programming. And we've got fantastic advice at blog.getintocollege.com. We are here for you wherever you are. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Enjoy the spring. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.